I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, Foo followers everywhere. Welcome to episode 40 of the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast with your host, Ben Johnson. Thank you so much for tuning in. To find out about all the latest martial arts movie news, release dates, details about this podcast and all the other developments that are happening on our website, you can sign up to our monthly newsletter. Also, by signing up to the newsletter, you have the opportunity to win free martial arts movie prizes. So, Become a registered Foo follower today by visiting kungfumovieguide.com. Simply type in your email address when prompted, and once you have verified your email address, you will automatically join our growing community of Foo followers around the world. You can also keep up to date with the show and the website by following us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And as always, if you want to contact the show, you can send us an email. The email address is hello at kungfumovieguide.com. Okay, that's the plug over with. Let's get on with the show. Episode 40 with Olivia Jackson. Here we go. Well, if you're really so determined to have a fight, then I'll oblige. hello there foo followers around the world wherever you are wherever you're based whatever you're doing welcome welcome one and all to the show my name is ben johnson i'm speaking to you here from london town here in the uk thank you so much for joining me we have a very special guest on the show today because I got to spend some time talking to the South African stunt performer, model and Thai kickboxer Olivia Jackson. Olivia lived in Thailand for a number of years where she competed in Muay Thai kickboxing, uh, eventually moving into the film industry and performing stunts in films like Mad Max Fury Road, Guardians of the Galaxy and The Force Awakens. But Olivia's life was transformed in 2015 following an horrific on-set accident while doubling for the actor Mila Jovovich on the set of Resident Evil The Final Chapter. That's the sixth and final instalment in the Resident Evil franchise. A motorcycle stunt went horribly wrong and Olivia's injuries were so severe that she eventually had to have her left arm amputated. But really, that's only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the injuries that Olivia sustained from the incident. Uh, She was very lucky to survive the crash, and her road to recovery has been slow and steady, but it's also been very inspiring. And anyone who follows Olivia on social media can attest to how she continues to show tremendous courage and determination to overcome the adversities that she faces in her life. And yet she still remains so positive. So it was an absolute privilege for me to be able to sit down with Olivia at her home uh, here in the UK to 
discuss her life story and the events of that fateful day. So I will throw over to that interview in a second. But first of all, a bit of business up front. We do hope you are enjoying season four so far. Uh, We have been very lucky to have had some awesome guests on the show so far this year. People like the Filipino fight choreographer Sonny Sisson, the martial arts movie star Don the Dragon Wilson, not to mention Bruce Lee's daughter, Shannon Lee. You can, of course, catch up with all the previous episodes of the show through all the usual podcast providers. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, Stitcher, SoundCloud and loads of other places I'm sure I've forgotten. But, uh, of course, the best way to keep up to date with all the latest episodes as they are being released is to subscribe to the show. And if you already do that, then thank you so much. Uh, And if you enjoy what we're doing here at the Kung Fu Movie Guides, then please do tell a friend or write a review or leave a star rating with your podcast provider. That all helps to spread the word of the show, boost the ratings and hopefully attract even more Foo followers. So thank you to anyone who has done that already. And a massive thank you also to everyone who has been uh, sending me sample reviews and asking about contributing to the website please do email me if you are interested the email address as always is hello at kungfumovieguide.com okay i will be back at the end of the podcast to sign off properly but before i do let me set up this conversation with olivia jackson which was recorded in april of this year 2019 Olivia lives in a lovely home outside of London with two very playful cats uh, who were jumping about during this conversation and mucking around with the microphone. So I'm pretty sure there's still some random cat noises going on during this interview. Also, I should probably just forewarn anyone listening to this who might be a bit squeamish or doesn't particularly like listening to descriptions of injury or surgeries. Uh, We do go into quite uh, graphic detail about Olivia's accidents and its aftermath. So yes, if that's not your thing, then maybe have the pause button ready when we start getting into all of that it's about 30 minutes into the episode there's also some fruity language on this episode of the show there's definitely an f-bomb in there and some other little swears littered about the place so again If that bothers you, then you have been warned about that too. You can follow Olivia Jackson on Instagram, and I strongly recommend that you do. Uh, Her Instagram name is at OliviaTheBandit, that's all one word. Later in 2019, an official biography of Olivia's life will be released, written by the New York-based writer Shannon Nixon. That should be available on Amazon later in the year. For more information about the book, head to the official Facebook page at Olivia Biography. So hopefully everyone is now prepared uh, and ready as I throw over now to my conversation with the great Olivia Jackson. Well, first of all, let's let's uh, let's go way back. Okay. <laughs> you were born in uh, Cape Town. 
I was actually right? born in Johannesburg in South Africa. Sure. But I moved to the sort of Natal Midlands when I was a baby. Yeah. Uh, we lived on a farm. It was an orange orchard farm. Yeah. Until I was about 10, we moved to another farm. Um, my parents split up and then we moved sort of a few places back and forth. Lived at the beach for quite a while. Nice. And when I was 18, I finished school and I moved to Cape Town to start modeling. But your sort of formative years then were, were spent in, in Jayburg. What's formative? <laughs> your years growing up. Oh, no, just I think I moved out of there when I was a baby. Oh, I don't fine. even remember Joburg, oh, okay. luckily, because it's a horrible place. I never go there. You know? <laughs> I've never been, actually, to South Africa. Don't so. go. Oh, South really. Africa's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Joburg's pretty shit. Yeah. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, of course you can. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Cape Town's amazing if you want to go to South Africa. Yeah. Although Joburg has some really nice uh, safaris and things like that. Yeah, so. yeah. Memories of growing up in South Africa? Quite fond, fond memories? Yeah, yeah. It was ama- I had an amazing childhood. Mm. Um, up until teenagehood, we lived on a farm. Yeah. And, oh man, it was paradise. It was three of us girls, and it was such paradise for kids. We had huge rockeries with all these different trees and plants we used to play in all day long. We had ponds and streams, and we used to you know, build boats and float the little boats down the river, uh, streams. We had orange orchards to play in, and, you know, huge uh, woodlands to play in, and you know, find banks, build boxes and skid down the banks really fast and right. things like that. Yeah, really good fun. Climb so it was quite an adventure uh, orientated yeah. child, very active. Yeah. Yeah. Really good fun. So your first introduction to the martial arts, can you remember when that was and how you got involved in that? I never had anything to do with martial arts. and but when I, So I started modeling when I was 18. Yeah. Moved to Cape Town, started modeling, and then after some time, I started to model in Europe. Yeah. So I'd I'd spend six months of the year modeling in Europe for their summer and their season. Yeah. And then I'll go back to Cape Town for their summer um, and their season. So you always, models always go where it's busy. It doesn't stay busy in one place all the time. Right. So I did that for a time, and then one year I went to where I was working in Milan, and I didn't really like it, so I ended up eating lots of Nutella. Okay. I could not stop eating Nutella. I was probably a little bit depressed being there, living in model homes and all that shit. It's not great. So anyway, I put on a little bit of weight, and then uh, I came back to South Africa, and then I was talking to some model, I can't remember who, at a casting, and she said, oh, she she went down to this uh, kickboxing gym. Just um, That's good for exercise, for losing weight. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go to that. That sounds good. So I just went and started this kickboxing, which wasn't kickboxing. It was Thai boxing. Yeah. Um, this is in Cape Town. In Cape Town, yeah. yes. Um, so I started that, and like even after my first session, I was like, this is awesome. Wow. It was that so, instant. Yeah, yeah. I loved okay. it. So What was I, it you liked about it? I don't know. It's hard to say. I, th- I think I love, I always love a challenge. Yeah. Um, I love having something to work towards and then I realized like how um, technical martial arts is. Yeah. I'm also quite a precise perfectionist. Mm. So, you know, when you're throwing an elbow, I don't just, un- I could not just throw an elbow. It has to be exact, you know, yeah. sort of like with swords as well, you know, everything yeah, has yeah, to be yeah. sort of very symmetrical. Um, 
so I guess that was part of it. And just, you know, with Thai boxing, with Muay Thai, you really get to move your body a lot. Mm. It's a great way to, to exercise. Um, so I enjoyed that part as well. Yeah. And you were fed up of the modeling at that point or were you looking for a way out of that industry? No, at that I still love the modeling. still enjoying it, yeah. Yeah, I just um, started started the martial arts, just training. Yeah. And then I started going three times a week and then I started going every day and then I started going twice a day. Yeah. Um, and then there was still, like, there was loads of, even somebody messaged me the other day laughing about it. It was a makeup artist. They always used to have to cover my bruises. Um, and then, yeah, there was loads of times that my modeling agency had a fight with my Muay Thai coach. Um, and then, especially one time, after two years of training, I, I sort of needed a challenge. Um, so I, want, I really wanted to start competing, fighting, mm-hmm. uh, just in the amateur league. I did have a fight and the first one was great I won easy so set up another fight the second one uh, not an excuse but I did fight a girl quite a lot bigger than me she was originally 12 kilos heavier than me but she dropped down to I think two weight categories above me Uh, not an excuse but I did lose pretty badly and I got a massive gonk on the eye and a huge black eye so like for the next, the shoots that I had for the next two, three weeks, I had to cancel. Right. And then my modeling agency really had a fight with yeah. my um, Muay Thai coach. Now we're even. Talk me through your academic side. Did you enjoy going to school? What were your sort of career pathways? When I was in school, I was very clever. So my family always sort of thought that I'd go, you know. In those days, doctor, lawyer. Route. Yeah, the professions. Yeah, um, but and then I just you know carry. I was very. I studied very hard. Yeah. And I think by the end of school, I just got. I just like this is boring. Right. And just stop bothering to study as much. I still did well. Still got good marks. Um, but I was, I didn't have. Was it not? It wasn't challenging enough. Did you find it just quite easy? Um, I don't know. Mm. I think. Yeah, I'm probably just more interested in partying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the normal thing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not very motivating. Yeah. Just sitting for hours, just ramming things in your heads. And that's all it is in school. It's not things you're actually interested in. It's just repetitively trying to go over the information so yeah. that it sits in your brain. Yeah, so just to There's not much more to it. Yeah, like yeah. nowadays I, I study a lot. Yeah. I study, I'm Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist. So study, it's a lot of studying with that, a yeah. lot of philosophy and, and things like that. So now I study a lot every day, but I love it. Yeah. Because it's a true passion. At school, it's not really. It's yeah. just, you know. Yeah, it's something you, ha- you have to do. You have to do, yeah. which never is never a motivator. Yeah. At what point did the modeling become a viable career move? Uh, well, because I, I, ne- I didn't know what I wanted to do as in a profession. So I just... I just went straight into modeling. I'd been asked to model when I was in school and my mother didn't let me until I finished school. So I just went straight into that and it just became a f- profession straight away. Yeah. To model well, you need to be pretty professional. You know, you need to train and keep your body fit and healthy and so that you look good, obviously, and 
trim and everything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and spend time to look after yourself. Don't drink, you know, drink lots of water, eat healthy so that your skin's glowing. You've got to be pretty healthy to be, to be a model, haven't you, really? Yeah, I think a lot of the girls are naturally skinny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm naturally sl- uh, slim. Yeah. Um, most, if not all, girls are, li- are like that, and also a lot of them are young. Yeah. So you don't get many models over the age of twenty-five yeah, in true. catwalk anyway. True. Um. So, but but they do train really hard, and I think nowadays, especially back in the day, it was just skinny, skinny. Yeah. Um. Now people like you know Victoria's Secret and things mm-hmm. like that, where you're showing pretty much all your skin. You need to have. You need to be firm. Yeah. So the girls do train really hard. Hey, it's your turn now. So you're getting into your uh, Muay Thai kickboxing. Yeah. And that's happening in Cape Town. Yes. When did you start competing and taking that seriously then? Well, that happened uh, naturally over some time. Um, in 2004, I think... I decided I'm just going to focus. It. I went to World Champs in Thailand yeah. for amateur. Um, so I thought, okay, I'll, that year I'll just I won't go to Europe. I'll just focus on the Muay Thai. Um, so that's started becoming much more of my passion than the modelling. Mm. I still love modelling even now. Uh, it's always been an enjoyable job, but my passion was was Muay Thai by this yeah. time. I was absolutely crazy about it. For some time before that, I decided I'll take two years. I'll save money and take two years off. And I'll just travel around Asia. I've always had a fascination with Asia yeah. since I was a kid. And when I was a teenager, I watched um, the movie Seven Years in Tibet. Yeah. And ever since then, I was absolutely fascinated with the Tibetan culture. Yeah. So when I when I started modeling in Cape Town as well, I used to go down to the library. Back in the days when you used to go to libraries. Yeah. Um, and I would just started, start studying Buddhism and Tibetan culture and everything. Um, so I had a goal in my mind that I wanted to go to Tibet and stay there. But uh, then I found out, obviously, Tibet was um, taken over by China and they right. kicked everyone out. So or everyone escaped. Uh, so I found out where they live in India, and uh, my goal was to to go there and live in a monastery there, and uh, study Buddhism. Yeah. So this is your early twenties, mid twenties. Uh, mid twenties. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then, after I went to World Champs, I sort of carried on training for a bit uh, in the martial arts, but then I went to to uh, India, mm. and then I spent that year. Um, I, I travelled around India for a bit, seeing the spiritual places, and then I stayed in a monastery, uh, just studying there and meditating. And then my sister, my younger sister, she was going with a boyfriend to Thailand, to an island in the south called Kotao. Yeah. Uh, and she said, "Oh, why not come over? Because it's not far from India. Why not come over and visit them?" So I said, "Okay, I'll go over and visit." So I got to this little island, and I thought, "Oh, there must be, you know, a Muay Thai gym around here." So I found one little Muay Thai gym, yeah. like quite far back in the jungle, really amazing little place called Island Muay Thai. Uh, so I thought, okay, I'll go do a session there. The manager there called Pitun, he, said, he uh, trained me at the end of the session. He said, 
do you want to do a, a fight in 10 days time so I was like okay I'll right. do fight yeah and it was a, a professional fight so you don't wear um, any in amateur league you wear a head Some guard pads or something, a chest yeah. pad and um, shin pads yeah which is really important in Muay Thai because mm. when you block with their kicks it's pretty hard conditions yeah. yeah yeah and I hadn't done any Muay Thai for a while so my shins were pretty soft but anyway, as you do when you're in your early 20s, I was like, okay, I'll do a fight. So I stayed in trade for 10 days, and then I did a fight. And I loved it, so... And I won pretty easily. So Putin said, there's another fight in three weeks' time. Do you want to do that one? So I said, okay, I'll stay for that one and do that one. Um, so I ended up staying there for for a couple of years because yeah. I really fell in love with the, the people from the gym, and they became like my family, so... How much did the training differ from what you were learning in Cape Town, the Muay Thai you were learning in Cape Town, compared to what you were learning in, in, in Thailand? Uh, I had a, a good base when I was in Cape Town. Mm. Anybody can hit pads and spar and everything. But when you're fighting, it's like to really push past what's uncomfortable. Yeah. So I had that good background. I think that was the main thing that I learned from Cape Town. That endurance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, more the mind strength. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's like strenuous on your emotions, you know, your spiritual side, your mental side, and your physical side. Yeah. When you're pushing that hard. Yeah. And you get an elbowed in the face. Yeah. And so many, and you, when you're so tired, and you, you get angry because you get really emotional. Yeah. And then they keep telling you to push on, and then they keep or they keep punching in the face or something. It's pretty hectic. Mm. Um, but it's it's really good, obviously, yeah. to always push past your limits. I won straight for like 10 or 15 fights, I think. Yeah. Although I was in the south, so I was living in Kotal and fighting in Samoy and sometimes Phuket and everything. So it's not as difficult as it is in Bangkok because yeah. that's where the tip-top fights are. But you must have been quite a different fighter on the scene over there. Not only are you a female fighter former model as well yeah I mean were you how were you treated out there well they used to love you know especially when I moved to Bangkok yeah and I was at 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 a gym called Kelsam Red which is really quite a very well known and very respected gym uh, with great lots of lots of world champs they're great fighters Uh, so they got a lot of connections with the magazines and you know the Muay Thai TV channels and stuff yeah um, and they used to love it because because I was a model. They always used to put me in the modeling. I mean, in, in the magazine with modeling pictures and my right. fighting pictures. They used to love it. They used yeah. to think it was so funny. Um, yeah, and you don't get many, um, you know, sort of Caucasian yeah. um, female fighters there. You do get some. But I used to speak uh, fluent Thai as well. So that was, it was pretty cool. It's good to commu- you know get to yeah. know the culture properly and communicate properly with them. Were you becoming quite a big star over there? Um, yeah, I guess in a way. And then I used to date um, quite a big Muay Thai star as well there. Sure. Um, so they used to love putting that all over the yeah. magazines as well. <laughs> so ridiculous. Um, but yeah. But you were clearly passionate about you know the the art itself and. Um, you know, it, it's there's, it's linked so closely to the spiritual side as well. Yeah, uh, you must have found that side quite appealing as as well. I'd imagine. Yeah, that's one thing I love about Muay Thai is it's yeah. 
um, not many, I don't know if even if any other ring sports mm. have that spiritual side. There's a lot to it. Yeah. Um, you know, with the Y crew, the dance that you do before, yeah. every every movement has a story. Yeah. There's a lot of Buddhist culture integrated into it. Women have to go under the ropes. Yeah. It's very chauvinistic, Thailand. Yeah. Extremely so. As a culture, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Very much so. There's a, the main uh, stadiums, Rajdamnon and Lumpini, a woman can't even touch with your fingertip the ring because it's such bad luck for a woman to touch the ring. Wow. I, even in, in the top gyms, like in my gym, there's one ring which I was never allowed to touch. You can go near it, but you're not allowed to touch it. Right. Or train in there, only men allowed. Yeah. How did you feel with regards to that? Uh, I don't know. I sort of fitted into it quite well. I just respected that's their way. Yeah. Um, and it, it was never yeah, a problem for me. Yeah. Ha! Oh, it is you. I was right. How long did you live in Thailand for? I think five, five years. One. Yeah, about five years. Did you start getting involved in movies around this time, or does that does that come a little bit later? I still used to model every now and again, um, and I did do a shoot. Uh, we went to shoot in Cambodia, and the other guy that was modelling with me, uh, we were acting as a couple. It was a shoot for a hotel, um, so we're acting as a couple, and he he was actually a casting agent films in Bangkok. He obviously found out what I do and everything and he was telling me about this film uh, a French film, Lago Winch the second one and they were shooting in Bangkok and they were l- looking for ages for a for a female Caucasian that could do her own stunts yeah. and they tried everybody, they just couldn't find somebody for the role so uh, he's like, do you want to do a casting in the room? So we did a casting and ended up getting the role um, so that's how I sort of went into the film world. And then I had to do my own stunts for that film. So they we had a really good French team there. And that sort of it's quite a shift when you go from real fighting to film fighting. Yeah. It's very it was very difficult and I had quite a few tears because I was getting so frustrated. I could not understand. I was like, "No, but that's not how you do this kick. This is how you do it." But anyway, um we had quite a few weeks of intense training all yeah. day long just yeah. to get me to shift over. Yeah. Um, and I loved that, that part of it, you know. I, lo- yeah. I loved the acting part of it, but I, I really loved the stunts and I just carried on doing the stunts and things. Because you were living in Thailand probably at a good time for movies there with regards to action movies in particular. On back, I guess, and Tony Jaa and all that was yeah. sort of kicking off early 2000s. Yeah, it yeah. Was, it's quite a good industry there. I mean, there's, there are some big films that go out there, but there's a lot of B films that yeah. shoot there. Also, a lot of Indian films, yeah. which are terrible, but they're really good fun, actually. Because yeah. <laughs> it's so unrealistic. You yeah. don't sort of have to stick what's what kicks you would really be able to do. Yeah, yeah. You can do it. You know, everything is the more crazier it is, the fun, the better for them. So you ended up in Thai productions in some Bollywood movies as well. Um, yeah, I did quite a few Bollywood films. Yeah. yeah. What sort of stunts are you doing on these on these movies? I did a lot of fighting stunts, and then you know, just the sort of we did a lot of wire stuff as yeah. well. Were you just quite happy to say, you know, whatever the whatever you've got? Yeah, I'll jump in and do it. Yeah, to a level. On the first film, I went went through some glass and during a fight and crashed some basins and half and things like that 
Um, but those aren't really things you need to rehearse or right. have um, a lot of practice with. But you would have had pretty good stunt coordinators, people on the set that were talking you through all of those stunts before um, you were doing them. Yeah, yeah. If, it, if it's something that needs to be rehearsed, you have to spend time, you'll spend time... Once you get to shooting, it needs to just it needs to be sorted. Yeah, people don't want to waste time. They want to. You just want to get there, set it up, and be able to do it. Yeah. In 2011, I thought I'll go back to Cape Town. I knew there was a bit of an industry in Cape Town. Yeah. So I thought I'll go give it a try there. But I did a few films, but it didn't really get into it that much. at that time. Um, it wasn't a great industry for females in South Africa, anyway. Um, Females so working in... In stunts. In stunts. Yeah. yeah. I also got involved with a boxing gym. Yeah. Uh, straight boxing, not Thai boxing. Uh, I was managing a boxing gym. So I did that and the stunts for 2011. And then 2012, I was like, no, nah, I can't do it. Because even though I was in a boxing gym, it was a bit too much like a normal job. So I was yeah. like, nah, I can't do this. <laughs> I'm out of here. So I thought, ah, I'm going back to Thailand. Um, so I went back to Thailand, and while I was there, um, I got a call to go back to Namibia, actually, Okay. Um, to do the film Mad Max. So some big titles here, then, that you've that you've worked on. Um, Safe House, Dread, Mordecai, Mad Max, you just mentioned there. Yes. Mad Max sounded like an insane shoot. <laughs> yeah, I loved uh, it. it was, that's my favorite yeah. film to work on. The, the bunch of people that they had, and they were amazing. Great stunt people. Yeah. Uh, you so were doubling for Charlize Theron, is that right? Originally, I was doubling for Rosie Huntington Whitney. Yeah, fine. Amazing girl. And um, then halfway through the shoot, I was asked to double for Charlize as well. Yeah, yeah. I was the second double, so they had another girl doubling her from New Zealand. Um, so I was doubling for Charlize as well then. Um, but she's... So I had to shave my head, yeah. which I really didn't want. So I didn't want to double for Charlize because I didn't want to shave my head. <laughs> but anyway, they ended up forcing me into it. And yeah, it was awful. So I, but I ended up doubling for you know, loads of the guys as well because we, we all played different characters. Yeah. It was mostly, there was only like five females in the story. The rest were all males. Yeah. So once I shaved my head, if I wasn't doubling for Charlize or for Rosie, then... Um, I'll double for one of the guys or play one of the guy yeah. roles. Um, so I was pretty busy. I was you know, doing lots. And that was, was a long fun. shoot as well there, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty much the whole year. Yeah. It was great. Though. I loved it. I remember an interview with Tom Hardy where he was saying that he wasn't fully aware of what George Miller had in mind for this. It all sat, looked a bit sort of crazy. And did you have an idea of like how it was going to look in the end, or were you just? Well, I, I actually, when I went to watch the, the film, yeah, I, I went to a cast and crew screening, and I was shocked as well. The yeah. first scene, I was like, wow, wow, I did not know this was happening. This is nuts. Yeah, it was a lot crazier than I thought it was going to yeah. be. Yeah, and he's. I love George Miller. He's such a cute, adorable person. Yeah, yeah. And he's got such an imagination on him because if you think of, you know, as like some of his other films like Happy Feet. Yeah. It's like Happy Feet, com- Happy Feet compared to Mad Max. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, he's a great director, and yeah, everyone was great on their producers and everything. Yeah. 
Well, he, he's a visionary director there, isn't he? Yeah. And I guess he... Um, and it was his thing for so many years. Yeah, it took he'd like worked 13 on that years for so long. to produce yeah. or something. Yeah. I'm so glad it came out the way it did. Mm. But it is it is a car and bikes movie, you know. If you're not yeah. into cars and bikes, then it's yeah. not the film for you. Yeah. <laughs> Leave and I'll spare you for the sake of Buddha. <laughs> for Mad Max, even though you have this martial arts background, was it a lot of car stunts? That sort of thing. Uh, well, cars, cars and bikes become very uh, specified. Mm. So they normally have specialists that come in and do bike stuff. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the characters that I was doing didn't have a lot of driving. They, they didn't, or they didn't do bikes either. That's when I started motocross. Um, I'm going to start motocross. So I have experience on a bike. So you got into that because of Mad Max. Yes. Yeah. Um, which I absolutely fell in love with and that became a new passion in life. Once you'd committed yourself to being a stunt performer, did you take it on yourself then to try and learn as much about the trade as possible to become something of an all-rounder so that if you were required to jump in, then you could say, yes, I could do that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah. I came from like a strong, a strong fighting background and I learned how to change it into film fighting but when when I came to do Guardians of the Galaxy uh, I worked with a you might know her Chloe Bruce super great yeah, martial Chloe artist Bruce. and yeah, also yeah. works in film um, I really real. I worked a lot closely with her she's a great girl um, but I really realised you know there's so much she's great with the staff yeah and I realised there's so much that I don't know so after that film, I really pushed myself. You know, I worked a lot on motorbikes. Yeah. Um, but I would do that anyway because I absolutely loved it. But I, I started to train a lot with um, staff and weapons. I just used to train on my own. I just like, this is it. I have to get good at, you know, as much as I can. It's really, really important. You can just, you know, be good at one thing or not really great at anything and just amble along. But I wanted to be brilliant you know yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and you were doubling Karen Gillan in that yes. who's a very uh, fighty role isn't it yes yeah uh, so what was that like making that movie oh that was good fun like it was pretty strenuous on the fight side yeah. because um, there was a lot of complications oh this producer wants that that producer wants this fight choreographer wants that and stunt coordinator wants something else like it was pretty strenuous because yeah. you're trying like Chloe and I we just kept repeating the hell out of fights. She was Gamora, wasn't yes. she? Yes. Yeah. So we had a we had a lot of fighting and with us two. And oh my god, we'd like just repeat the shit out of the fight and somebody would come along, oh no, they don't they don't want this and that. Somebody else would come along and say the same thing. It drove us crazy. Yeah. My God. Um, but eventually we got it right. Yeah. Yeah. And how exciting when you're putting all that hard work and previews together to then get on the set, to get in a costume and then actually, you know, do the thing. That must yeah. have been quite, quite that, exciting. That one fight scene, the, the long fight scene that we did towards the end, that I think was four days shooting on, I think two days in main unit, two days in second unit, but all in a row. So it was four days solid. But, oh my god and because I, I had um, prosthetics on my face to yeah. look like Karen yeah. I could do the whole thing like Karen didn't really have to do anything at yeah. all do you think there's a bit of a misconception around how much these leading actors and performers are actually 
you know, doing their own action in these films. Do you think people are actually aware of how much it is down to the to the doubles? No, I don't think they realise at all. But yeah. but that's what it's supposed to be, you know. Yeah. It's supposed to look like I never really had a problem um, you know, with actors. I mean, it's a bit weird when actors are... I did all my own stunts, meaning I didn't do anything. But there's not many that do that, you know? Those films are the tentpole movies, aren't they? They yeah. sort of prop up Hollywood. Yeah. Um, do you think more should be done for to support, you know, and uh, raise awareness of the stunt teams? Well, I think there's, you know, always these big drives for the Oscars. You know, stand-up for stunts that people want um, action to be re- uh, recognised in the Oscars. Uh, I can't understand... I'm not a big driver for that because that was never my reason for doing stunts. I just mm. used to love it so much that uh, I couldn't be bothered whether you get an award or not. Um, but I do I do agree. I can't understand why there isn't an award for action, not for stunt performers, but for yet the, the action design. Um, because the action design, you know, the stunts department is there right from the beginning. Right, when, you know, as you get the script designing and working with producers, and it's a big part of all f- most films. And you watch a, a trailer for, you know, action films, or um, there's always stunts in there. If you take away the stunt department, nobody's going to watch the film because yeah. the trailers are shit. Yeah. Um, so I can't, I don't, can't understand why, you know, they have that with the Oscars. Mm. Um, but hopefully it will come one day. Why don't you fight? We should say you worked on The Force Awakens as well. Uh, I did a lot of a lot of um, newspapers and online news said that I worked on The Force Awakens and I was doubling the lead. I wasn't. I actually worked Chloe one day. Did. Yeah, yeah, Chloe <laughs> yeah. Did that, yeah. Um, Chloe was doubling, but I worked for. Worked on there one day, <laughs> and all I did was fall over on my bum. But um, my husband worked on The Force Awakens for the whole run of it. Yeah, yeah. We should say that you're married to uh, David Grant. David Grant, yeah, yes. UK stuntman. Um, where did you guys meet? Uh, we met on Guardians of the Galaxy, actually. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I came over and uh, I had my head. I had to shave my head in on Mad Max because yeah. for Charlize. And then, so my hair was growing back a bit, so it had sort of, you know, shortest, shortish length, but normalish hair. Um, and then on Guardians of the Galaxy, I had to shave my head, razor blade yeah. shaved every day. Um, but he still fell in love with me, so. <laughs> <laughs> my husband and I got married. So the, you have to stay in South Africa. The, they have to sort my visa out, my spousal visa, before yeah. I was allowed to return to the UK. Yep. But they, they lost my passport or something. I still don't know what happened. But it took really long, and I ended up getting stuck there for like 10 months. In South Africa? Yeah. Yeah. Which is really frustrating because I was away from Dave, and um, there was a lot of films they had to um, decline that were shooting in the UK. Um, but I was stuck in South Africa, and I was loving it because I was just riding motocross. Great. I wasn't doing any work, just riding um, and racing a little bit. Um, so I was in my element, and then... Um, I got I auditioned for for a film shooting in the UK for the first Wonder Woman. I got that job, and then um, but I wasn't sure when I could return because I didn't know where my passport was. Yeah. So, uh, 
and then at the same time I got asked to do Resident Evil which I didn't want to do because uh, I didn't want to stay in South Africa anymore I just wanted to get back but again I was a bit stuck with the passport so I thought okay I'll just uh, do the Resident Evil film which is a pretty shit film but but uh, some fun stunts in it it was yeah. a lot of fighting a lot of motorbike stuff so I thought yeah. I love those two so I'll do Resident Evil and then I'll go back and one woman said I can just hop on there when I when I get back to the Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay. Did you notice when you were working on that film, was the setup any different than what you'd been used to? Or was it business as usual? We had a month of rehearsal time. Yeah. Um, which our focus mainly, we had a lot of big fights to run through, so we did a lot of that with a fight team and a little bit of um, wire work and bike stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was pretty normal. It's just a lot, um, it's not a big film like I was used to shooting in the UK, so yeah. everything was a little smaller, the teams were a little smaller, not quite as professional. You know, I had an argument with the stunt coordinator because we had some... It was a new BMW 1000 bike that came out, and that I think it's called an XT. I, I said to them, I'd like a, a bike. I know a guy that races BMW in South Africa. I'd like him to come on the team, so we work specifically. You know, if you want good quality, you've got to put in the time and the yeah, money. Yeah. But anyway, they refused to have this guy on the team. Um, so it was a little bit... Um, cheaper than mm. what I was used yeah, to. Yeah, was that so that was just because of uh, budget? Yeah, r- just r- budget, yeah. I okay. guess, yeah. Okay. Did you meet Mila Yosevich uh, during that time? Uh, yeah, I met her. She's a really nice lady. Yeah. We had to... Um, sometimes she, she had just had a baby, a second baby, I sure. think. Yeah. Um, so we had to go... Sometimes she'd come in for rehearsals. We we always have to teach the the actors the fights. Yeah. Um, sometimes they do them sometimes they don't sometimes they do the whole thing and then I do the whole thing and then they cut and edit it from that yeah um, so we always have to teach them a fight which takes quite a long time a lot of times we had to go to the house that they were staying so she'd be near her baby yeah um, yeah she was cool yeah pretty nice yeah. lady yeah. and Paul W.S. Anderson as well uh, her husband yeah the, he's the director yeah. and also yeah, producer yeah. Uh, he was really nice yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the injury. You don't mind talking about this? He's no, obviously talked about it quite, quite a bit. Was it a sort of routine uh, stunt for you to be doing? And the stunt was, you know, nothing, nothing that crazy yeah. or fancy looking. 
um, it was just I just had to drive in a straight line where there was two sort of bridges about a kilometer from each other I'd start from the far bridge and there was um, driving forward in a straight line and there was a an action vehicle um, which is a like a SUV with a crane on the top of it yeah and that can go off to the side of it and the end of the crane is a camera yeah and the crane can move in any direction uh, the that vehicle was coming towards me in the opposite direction and all that was supposed to happen was I was supposed to go in line with the camera and the, the crane uh, skims the camera along the ground as they're driving and as it comes towards me it lifts up and over the top of me um, so that was it basically that's yeah. what it was supposed to be in there. did you rehearse this stunt beforehand? Uh, we did have a few rehearsals, but definitely not as many as um, we should have. Yeah. And is that because was time against you? Was it one of those you know things where we're losing the light? We've got to get this stunt. Um, no, I no. don't think so. It was it was a bit of a um, clusterfuck, for lack of a better word, on that day because uh, we were actually supposed to shoot um, a fight scene on top of a moving vehicle. Right. Um, but it was raining, so then they were like, um, let's just shoot something because producers, all they ever care about is money. And like, oh, these people getting paid here, we've got to shoot something. So so they said, okay, let's shoot motorbike stuff, which is not a problem riding in the rain. So you weren't really supposed to be doing that stunt on that day at no. all? No, that's not what we were supposed to be doing at all. Yeah. Do you remember the incident happening? How much do you remember of it you know surprisingly I actually remember the whole day up until the actual ap- accident right for some reason and somehow your brain knows that that incident is too traumatic and it completely blocks it out yeah and I'll probably never remember the actual you know the camera hitting me yeah yeah um, but I can remember up until that moment which is crazy because if you think of about me driving in a straight line at 70 kilometers an hour and they driving at about 45 kilometers an hour in the opposite direction and then they hit me straight in the in the face and the head you know I've got massive brain injuries but for some reason I can still remember the whole day which is pretty crazy so let's talk through this then so this truck with this camera attached to the crane is travelling towards you at, yeah. did you say 40 kilometres an hour? Right? about 45 45 yeah. kilometres an hour you're on the bike heading towards the vehicle. Yes. How fast are you going? About 70 kilometers an hour. 70 kilometers an hour. The crane's off the side of the SUV. Yeah. So they're driving towards me a little bit off to the side, mm-hmm. to the right-hand side of mm-hmm. me. So the crane is directly in front of me, but it's low down. So they they push it low down and it, so that the camera on the end of it is swooping along the ground. Yeah. And then as I drive, get toward near it, it's supposed to lift up and then the crane... Um, and the camera pass over the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which isn't what what happened. Which is not no. what happened. Yeah, unfortunately, um, there was a lot of mess ups and um, the production fucked up on many levels. And um, anyway, it resulted in them not lifting the crane in time. So they just hit, uh, slammed it right into my head and uh, upper part of my body, left hand side of my body. 
the result of which was that you're in hospital, you're in a coma for 17 days? Yes. How close were you to that being the end? Jeez, I actually don't know how I survived. I didn't have a helmet on, obviously. Yeah. Because uh, it's for the, for the story, I didn't have a helmet on. Um, if you think about it, it's like driving at about one hundred and thirty kilometers an hour. If I just rode a bike, a bike at one hundred thirty kilometers an hour straight in, straight into a um, big uh, concrete bridge, yeah, you know, that's yeah. that's basically what you're doing. Um, but yeah, I was in. A, uh, I was pretty close to dying quite a few times. Um, obviously, in the beginning, the mo- the most um, severe thing at the time was my brachial artery here on my shoulder was mm-hmm. severed, so all my blood was leaking out into my body, um, which punctured my lungs from the pressure of the internal bleeding. Um, I there was absolutely loads wrong with me, tons of bones broken. You know, my my face was degloved here on the left hand side, so all my teeth were showing. You know, all the skin gets ripped back. And my zygoma or my cheekbone, my this eye socket bones were broken. The shards of glass all in my face was, you know, lacerated all over my face. Um, my arm was broken. There was a piece of forearm bone just missing, and both bones of those were broken. They never found your forearm, is that right? And they never found the forearm bone. The one part of the bone, about nine centimeters long. Um, just disappeared never to be found my thumb got amputated they did find the thumb a day later but it was too late (laughs) Um, you know a punctured lung and um, so what happens from the from such a forceful impact your shoulder gets pushed back from your head at such a such a pace and impact that it rips all the nerves out that feed your top half of your body out of your spinal cord um, so I'm paralyzed on my top left hand side of my body. Um, but yeah, I'd l- uh, I almost died quite a few times trying to come out of the coma because when they try, when you come out of the coma and because you, you've got pipes mm. f- breathing for you, when they try and pull the pipes out, um, the, when you, you sometimes you can breathe on your own, sometimes you can't. Um, so I almost died again then when they tried to, when I was trying to breathe on my own. Um, yeah, I was very touch and go for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Did they tell you, have you since pieced this together, what sort of happened immediately after the accident? Actually, my sister was in that town at that time. So right. she was the first one at the hospital. Yeah. And um, she, she saw me come in, although she didn't know it was me. She thought it was um, a huge rugby guy because right. I was so swollen from internal bleeding. Um, so she's the one that told me she could see my teeth and the nurse's. Um, yeah, I guess everybody just thought they were either weren't sure if I was going to make it. They actually stopped filming for a week, mm. and then they were probably like, "Okay, that's enough. <laughs> Let's get back to business." Um, but yeah, it was pretty traumatic for the other stunt performers that are around there that I know pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming out of the coma, do you remember that the first time, sort of seeing yourself in the extent of the injuries? Well, you don't see yourself for a while because when you come out of the coma, you're still uh, stuck on your back. Yeah. Uh, when I when I was coming, they can bring you out very cleverly over some time. 
Um, so I don't remember for the first few days, but uh, Dave, my husband, said that I kept pointing. I saw the pipe down my throat, so I couldn't talk. But I kept pointing to my left arm because I knew it was couldn't move. And then one of the first things I said when I come out, I said, can you organize some physio tomorrow? <laughs> Thinking that my arm was going to fix, but I didn't know that it was paralyzed. And actually nobody told me that it was paralyzed and that it's impossible for it to work again because your nerves don't grow back into your spinal cord if they're ripped out by the root. Um, I guess nobody had the heart to tell me. And also for a long time, Dave was adamant that something could be done. So there was always hope. Um, but eventually, I just realized, you know, there's n- absolutely nothing can be done. There's no doctor in the world that can do anything. And um, So I, the what was really um, horrible was the weight of the arm, especially my neck was, my neck is paralyzed on the left-hand side. Mm. So I didn't have any muscles to support the weight of the arm, and it's dead weight. So that was really holding my lifestyle back. So... After a couple of months, I was just like, let's just chop the arm off because I'm sick of it. I just want some kind of normality back. That's such a huge decision to have made, though. Yeah, a lot um, of people were like, no, don't chop off your arm. But I was like, it's got to go. Like, And I, honestly, the day it happened and when I woke up in the afternoon, I d- as I opened my eyes, I was like, oh, I feel better. Like really? the weight was just drastic. Yeah was horrible and straight after that like i I was like i'm going back to training you know yeah it was way better so it was great it was the best decision and the best thing that's ever happened to me since the accident and in any case because of the missing bones in the forearm it would have to take one of my the entire shin bone one of the shin bones one of the bones in your lower leg anyway um to replace that that bone in the forearm. So that was talked about at the time as a way of saving yes. the arm. Right, yes. okay. But the arm gets really gross. Like It just gets like a claw. It right. just really withers in and you have to spend hours a day pulling your fingers out. But they always end up like a really claw and it ends up so thin and emaciated and it's, like, it's really just not attractive and it was uncomfortable and it was horrible. So, yeah, off it went. From the moment the accident happened, how long then were you in the hospital for? Uh, in the beginning, I was in the hospital for about four months, maybe. Mm. My husband rented an apartment five minutes from the hospital. Yeah. So I stayed at home, and then I'll just go into the hospital every day to do what I needed to do. Mm. And then I'll just go back um, for a few weeks at a time when I needed surgeries. Roughly how much surgery was was required then? Jeez, you know, I don't, I don't even know how many surgeries I have. They put me, they put you in an induced coma, yeah, because because there's so much they have to do to your body mm-hmm. that you wouldn't be able to handle the trauma mentally yep. and physically. So um, that's why they put you in an induced coma. Um, but so they just, they just take you in and out. They have loads of computers, you know, reading all sorts of things going on in your body. So they know exactly when your body is under too much stress and then they stop doing surgery and then as soon as you can handle it again they put you back in so I just I had loads I don't even know how many they just take you in and out and in and out to keep doing surgeries yeah and you said once I think in an interview that it was actually the, the twisting of your back as well yeah. that was causing the most the most agony yeah that was um, so when I, when you're in a coma 
and that close to death they they don't bother fixing bones because they have to save your life that's a priority so my uh, collarbone was broken towards the end where where it actually attaches to your collar your um, shoulder blade um, and the shoulder blade was shattered um, but because of the muscle luckily um, all, most all the doctors said that if I didn't have such strong muscles you know from boxing um, my arm would have just come completely off uh, on impact um, so my muscles saved luckily but they, they keep all your scapular bones together so although it was shattered it still stayed in one place so they just sort of uh, fused back in a really weird position in the collarbone uh, so because I was in a coma and lying down everything fell backwards into a lying position yeah. so when I'd sit up, up again it's all twisted backwards still in a lying position it was so uncomfortable my god it used to drive me crazy yeah. and I went to loads of different surgeons and nobody really knew what to do and I found one surgeon that he's just the best um, so I just get kept getting passed on like mm, don't know what to do with this one <laughs> next um, but yeah. so you've got to know this surgeon quite well um, yeah he's done a couple he, he sorted out my bones to be normal mm-hmm. um, in a more normal position which is a huge relief and then we did another one to manipulate because of the paralysis on the chest my shoulder my whole shoulder girdle is too far back uh, I spend my life just pushing it forward or pulling it forward taping it forward or lean against something it drives me crazy um, so he did another one to manipulate he cut the collarbone obliquely and sort of twisted it forward um, and also away from my spine because my spine's very twisted now as well um, yeah mm. that's the story of the shoulder <laughs> <laughs> never ending story unfortunately yeah so it happened 2015 yeah September you said earlier that you're still in pain today I'm always, always, always in pain. Not for one second in the last three and a half years I've been without pain. It's just part of my life now, unfortunately. And you just have to hope every day for, you know, you always measure it out of 10. Is it 10 out of 10 pain? Or is it 2 out of 10 pain? Um, you just got to hope for, you know, a 3 or a 4. But Where is the pain most acute now then uh like right now i have a lot of pain in my phantom arm yeah um i I constantly always have pain in my in my hand my phantom hand um there's a lot of there's always um very sharp pins and needles but sometimes you get electric bolts of you know shocks through your hand or your arm and sometimes you it'll be frozen so much it's like frostbite and then sometimes I feel like somebody's uh, putting a hot iron on your arm. It changes all the time, and it never cha- it's never constant, not for one second. On your on the arm that isn't there. Yeah, on the phantom arm. Yeah, it's like a musical orchestra of pain in the arm, <sighs> constantly moving, constantly changing, and oh man! But uh, yeah, the the best thing you can do for that um, is mental strength. Yeah, yeah, because if it's a phantom um, thing, I mean, what? How? They yeah, can't you really can't. Treat that. You can't <laughs> they, do anything to that? it. Yeah. Yeah. You have drugs which I try not to use. Um, I've so I've taken them away over the years, because um, I don't like sort of modern scientific chemical drugs. Um, but 
yeah, that only helps to a certain extent. I've extent I've found the best thing that helps is um, meditation and things like that. It it doesn't take away the pain, but you can um, take away the suffering from the pain. I don't know if that makes sense or not. But yeah, 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 yeah. And you don't take any medication per se for for the pain that you're in. I do still take one of them, but I'm constantly trying to decrease. So I've worked out a way. To you, that you can decrease it because everybody that I know that has these injuries they just stay on the drugs forever mm. but I've decreased mine so much like originally I was on 13 different painkillers for phantom pain and every one of those were at the maximum dosage for my weight now I'm just on one painkiller that I've split into three times a day um, and then I've worked out a way I can actually decrease that by 2% per week so that's it, just two percent. But that two percent sends my pain like skyrocketing. Um, but if you just leave it at that two percent for a few weeks, then I think your brain gets used to it, mm. Mm. and then it calms down a bit, and then you can decrease a little bit more. So it's really slow, but but I have decreased it a lot. So it's just time. Do you need any more surgeries? Uh, I think I'll always need surgeries, unfortunately, for the rest of my life. There's a lot of hidden problems as well hmm. that I'm always trying to that I'm always treating, but I try to treat them with nutrition. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of uh, brain injury problems, um, which cause a lot of hormonal problems. Your pituitary gland they don't make sort of certain hormones. They don't make uh, melatonin, which is a hormone that makes you go to sleep. They don't make cortisol either, which is a hormone which wakes you up. So I'm basically like flatlining through. Uh, every day um, so I I try to treat that with nutrition rather than fix mm. it rather than just sort of taking loads of different hormones how do you remain positive hmm well sports yeah yeah I, I need to keep busy yeah I'm not the type of person that sits in doors and watches TV for the rest of my life because no. I can't go out my house much it, it gets too painful yeah. so it's very unfortunate because I'm not an indoors person, but I just had to learn to adapt yeah. to be like that. I mean, does it? It takes its toll. Then, if you're walking around, if you're out, if you're standing up for too long, even even now, it's it yeah. still has it takes its toll. Yeah. yeah, I get like my spine and my shoulder and my neck get really twisted and mm. just everything goes into spasm. Um, so I am housebound quite a lot. So, you know, I just make the best of what I can and. I have two two cats that keep me great company. Yeah, and yeah. Dave's not here. They've been running around quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. since. They're very they're very relaxed now. Yeah, yeah. I love them to bits. Yeah, uh, I do always. I love all animals, um, uh, but these two are really great company. I got mm. them when I came back to the UK. Um, and yeah, just sports and um, and my Buddhism obviously yeah. a lot. Yeah, and um, that's a huge factor in keeping mentally strong. Mm. Um, twice a year I go on a retreat I go for a week on retreat and otherwise I meditate every day and then I study normally at night time do you have resentment do you have anger Do you, are these emotions that you feel quite often uh, I do go through loads of phases obviously yeah. um, sometimes I do get I do get pretty angry if I think about it although I'm I'm not I'm not naturally an angry person. No. It takes a lot for me to get yeah. 
to get like grossly angry, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do. Sometimes I just get upset. And I'm like, God, why do I have to suffer like this for the rest of my life? Like it's not the life I wanted, and it's just shit. So you know, it's so unfair. But then sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, things are fine. Things are, you know, good. There's always phases. Um, and you yeah. must feel lucky in many ways that you survived the incident at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky in many ways. I'm lucky. You know, they didn't even think that I would be able to control the left-hand side of my face at all. They thought my, I've got a Horner syndrome, which is you got a droopy eyelid, which I'm very com- uh, got a complex about. Um, uh, but they thought that my eye would just stay open. Mm. I would never be able to blink again. Then my my eyeball would dry out, and I'd go like blind. I think, um, and then I wouldn't be able to talk because my face is paralyzed on the left hand side. Um, so I'm actually so lucky that it's relatively normal. You know, they built my face back to look relatively like the other side. Um, I can blink my left eye. Um, part of my face is still paralyzed but it's nothing drastic I'm lucky to have such a great husband and such a supportive family uh, loads to be lucky for and the movie world is that something you'd like to explore as well maybe th- down the line uh, you know the stunt industry has been amazing through the whole mm. time they were very supportive and they sort of started GoFundMe accounts and got a lot of money to support me through for my medical things and all that um, and uh, even like through the whole time they've all a lot of them stunt coordinators that offered me work probably just go and do nothing or just help out a lot um, I couldn't fall over or anything because of mm. my neck um, so they have been really good to me unfortunately I just can't work um, maybe in the future but for now I can't stand up for that amount of time yeah and a film day is a long day. Yeah. You know, you're talking about 12 plus hours. So mm. I can't stand up for longer than, you know, a few minutes without extreme pain. And, yeah, I don't like to be and not a hard worker. Yeah. I like to be on film set and always be ready to help out. Mm. You know, even if I'm not doing stunts, I want to be there with the radio and helping out if somebody needs something to yeah, go and yeah. do it. Um, so I'm just not ready yet, but maybe in the future. <laughs> Do you blame anyone for the accident? Ooh, there's lots of people I can blame. <laughs> lots. <laughs> but those details will come out in the press in the future, I guess. We should say there's legal things happening as yeah, well, isn't there? Yeah, there's lots so of legal things going on. So there's a lot of things which I, I can't release quite yet. But yeah. the day will come. <laughs> what was the aftercare like with regards to the production company and the film, the people who made Resident Evil, were they quite responsive following the accident? Um, they were in the beginning, um, and then it started becoming a lot of money, and then um, they basically couldn't give a shit. Basically. <laughs> yeah. The end. <laughs> Are they still in contact with you? Um, no, the only sort of contact that I have with the production on that side is just legal stuff mm. you know the, the the really sad thing about production is that um, everybody's so compassionate and they want to help they love to say they want to help but when it comes down to money people change 
it actually gets it's pretty sad to see how it changes when it comes it comes to separating with quite a lot of money mm. yeah so that's been quite an eye opener but um yeah just have to see how things go <clears throat> anyone in your position or similarly who is maybe listening to this they are a stunt performer they're working in this industry is there anything that you would be telling them when they're you know as ways of uh, protecting themselves or regards to insurance or any tips that you could give them when they're going into making these movies you know it's so hard to say because in my situation there were so many breaches of contract and you don't you don't know you know you can't you can't know every department Hmm. Um, whether they've done what's in the contract or whether they haven't, um, uh, I think I think the best thing you can do is just have you you know your own insurance. Yeah. Because um, there's a big <clears throat> element of trust in the, in all of this, isn't there? Yeah, really? completely. You know, and you can't you know there's so many departments in the film. Uh, you know, the, like in my situation, I don't have control over what's happening in the action vehicle. Mm. If they make any changes or they decide to go cowboy and do something crazy, I have no control over that. But you have complete trust that every department is the best at what they do, and they're doing it, you know, to their best potential. Yeah. Um, like I do in my job, you know. But but you can't, yeah. It comes, yeah, as you said, you just trust in other departments, mm. but you also can't control them. When you start out stunt performing, you do a lot of, you're around a lot of things or in situations where it's probably not the safest, but you don't know. And the the further on in your career, you know, you insist like, why haven't you put mats down? You know, you could, you could fall there or that could happen. Why haven't you done this? It wasn't long after your accident that Joy Harris died on the set of Deadpool Two oh, yeah, in a in a motorcycle accident. Should more be done to protect stunt performers? Well, you know, I don't like to to comment on situ- situations where I wasn't there because there's so much um, that's involved. So I don't I don't want to comment on that specific situation because I don't know, you know, what the safety was or you know how she was or how, what the situation was like. Um, but in general, like it is getting a lot stricter now, especially in in the in the UK, um, they have a quite strict system for safety. Um, in the states as as well, and um, Australia and Canada, um, but uh, in a lot of the other countries, you know, the safety isn't as um, strict, which isn't great. Do you think it's because the way the action movies? Nowadays, you know, everyone's seen everything. They're competing with computer-generated effects. If they're going to use uh, human beings, they've got to constantly up the ante. Do you think that puts pressure on stunt departments? Maybe things get overlooked in some way? You know, the problem is that that producers pressure you. They always want more, 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 now, now, now. Um, for cheaper and cheaper mm. and they always want to push for more and you have to have a, a stunt coordinator that just says no I'm not doing this stunt because we haven't rehearsed it if everybody wants to stop go do something else for two hours and come back then we would have rehearsed and then we can do it do you think people are aware just of the actual 
you know, dangers there are on, on these film sets? Actually, I think that the general public think the stunts are a lot um, crazier than what they are. Hmm. I think that people don't realize how calculated it is. I think in a way people think um, stunts as, you know, old school stuntmen and you just go do crazy stuff. Um, but but in film, it's a lot different. It's very calculated. And whatever the stunt is, you start really slow and really simple and you, you slowly build it up. You never just go in, you know, all guns blazing. <laughs> There's the physical impact, obviously, is, uh, of, of the injury, but, but mentally it must have been quite a um, task during the recuperation recovery process. Mentally, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? Do you find that the Buddhism actually helps that in, in, in a way? Uh, yeah, the, the, the mental part of it is the hardest part. Mm. You know, the physical is one thing, but... The really hardest part for me was the change of lifestyle. Yeah. You know, how much I love my martial arts and how crazy I was about motocross. Like, that was my life, motocross. And, um, you know, I loved stunts and my work and everything. Um, and all of that was taken away. <clears throat> so, that was the hardest, that is the hardest part of it. The good thing is that it's given me a lot of time to practice my Dharma and my Buddhist. Uh, practices and beforehand you know I was so busy riding motocross training stunts and filming and everything so um, although I I was always studying my Buddhist practices uh, slowed down a bit so now I have the time to you know meditate every day and do my practices and study and all that. Do you replay the incident at all over in your in your head how things could have been done differently or you know do do you think about that a lot? I don't. I'm. I'm just not that way inclined. Maybe it's my Buddhist um, mm. background, but you know, it is what it is. I just get on with it. All I focus on is is what can be done. You know what? You know, constantly thinking of things that can help my physical pains, and you know, um, always focusing on training. I still train. I still do martial arts, and I still do horse riding and everything. Um, so just focusing on things that motivate me and will make me stronger mm. rather than worrying about things that you can't change anyway. I do follow you on Instagram and mm. you're quite an inspirational person. I know you uploaded a video relatively recently of you training. Uh, it seems like you're someone who's, you know, like, like you were in the Mai Tai ring. You weren't going to let these things defeat you. Well, I've always, I just love sports. Yeah. I think it's such an important... It's always been an important part of my life. Mm. I started off getting back into the martial arts, um, which was a little scary in the beginning because I always come from a fighting background. But then my martial arts teacher from Genesis, Paul Busby, he's amazing and he was just like, this is the style we're going to go for now. You obviously can't go back into Muay Thai where you're just going like full power, getting yeah. kicked in the head and shit because... You know, I don't have the neck support and everything for that. Um, so we're going to do kickboxing, um, which is a lot busier, but you stay further away, obviously. Um, and then you, you've also got the uh, grading system. So you've got the belts, um, which I've never done before, but it's an it's a great way to give you motivation. Yeah. So um, you, in this school, we have 
an eight belt system um, at the moment I'm on the fifth one so I've got three more to go until the black belt which would be an amazing accomplishment um, yeah. to get the black belt with one arm um, it is obviously it's difficult because every time I go to training it's really hard on my body all the twisting and um, the standing up makes my back really really sore but I, I think it's really important to just just keep doing it and yeah. it gives you so much back than what than what it takes how do you feel now being a something of a role model i guess for disability i don't know i don't see myself as a role model no. i just look at everything from my perspective from my eyes i guess and i just i'm just doing what i do yeah yeah um like my things on instagram i don't there's so much bullshit out there on instagram yeah it? so my instagram i try to keep really organic and really true mm. Um, I don't sort of try to pretend oh my life's amazing or this and that I just try to keep it really real people interested they're interested if they're not they're not doesn't yeah, matter yeah. yeah I'm just doing what I do thank you so much for your time no Olivia. worries it's good to uh, meet you for talking to me today that's, uh, that's fantastic and all the best obviously for your recovery thank you Well, well, Olivia Jackson there, such an incredible and inspirational person and just an incredible uh, story, I think you'll agree. It really was an honour to be able to sit with her and discuss her life and her steps to recovery. Uh, I did end up staying a bit longer with Olivia once the mics had been turned off. We were talking a lot more about the movies that she's worked on and her ongoing recuperation and her martial arts training we do wish her and her husband david all the very best for the future and we will be sure to share with you all the latest details about that book which should hopefully be coming out later in the year in the meantime you can always keep up to date with all the latest olivia jackson news by following her on instagram her name on instagram is at olivia the bandit okay i guess the only other thing to mention here before i leave is that i have now seen john wick chapter three parabellum i know on the last episode with sunny sisson i mentioned at the end that i hadn't yet seen it well I have now, and my God, is it good. Really enjoyed it. Such a fantastic movie, and I cannot wait to see it again. I think the work that Chad Stahowski and Keanu Reeves are doing on that series is just exemplary, and it leaves you really wanting to delve a lot deeper into that mad world that they've created and see a lot more of those amazing action scenes. So it was really good to then hear that John Wick 4 is on the way John Wick 4 is coming out in 2021 apparently so that's really good news if you do want to see me gush in more detail about how much I enjoyed John Wick Chapter 3 then you can of course head to kungfumovieguide.com to read my review of the film and if you haven't seen it yet then you really really should okay a few thank yous as always at the end here a really big thank you to george dennis for his ongoing technical support a massive thank you of course to olivia jackson for inviting me over to her home to take part in this episode and a huge thank you to you the loyal food follower who has taken the time 
to listen to this episode all the way to the very end thank you so much we should have another episode for you in two weeks time so until then i will bid you farewell and i will speak to you again soon on the next episode of the kung fu movie guide podcast bye for now Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.